May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Mark's Gospel moves quickly. No sooner has John appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, than Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, himself without sins to repent of, arrives from Nazareth of Galilee and receives John's baptism, not out of need, but to fulfill all righteousness. And just as his head breaks from under the surface of the blue-green Jordan waters, the heavens tear open, and the Spirit of God descends upon him while the Father's words, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased, echoing thunderously from above. And the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness so that he departs the baffling scene with the waters of the Jordan still dripping from his body. That glorious moment may pass by in a flash, but once in the wilderness, things slow down just as abruptly. Forty days Jesus spends in the desert. Forty days is a long time. When God made it rain for 40 days, it was enough to subsume the entire earth under the waters of the flood. And although Mark's Gospel tells us little of what happened, it's easy to imagine the hardships he faced in the desert. It's as easy to imagine them as it would be difficult for us to live them. The dry heat of the place. The winds kicking up sand so that the arid landscape clung to his body. The scorching sun. The cold nights. Alone. Accompanied only by the threatening sounds of animals afoot nearby. And there he dwelt. Day after day. Night after night night. How loudly might the words of the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased, have echoed in Jesus' mind. How soon did they begin to reverberate against his empty stomach? Or did they grow fainter, fainter with each passing How incongruous a blessing like that must have seemed as he lived in such dangerous terrain. Now, of course, we can only speculate about Jesus' inner experience during his trials. Yet I can't help but notice that when Satan appears on the scene, he goes straight for the jugular, straight for those words spoken by the Father at Jesus' baptism. 
Mark's gospel doesn't mention the specifics, but Matthew and Luke both supply the details. Forty days after the whirlwind brilliance of Jesus' baptism had passed, the devil tempts our Lord, thrice trying his belief with variations of the accusation. You heard that you are God's beloved son? He's pleased with you? Prove it. First, as Jesus is knotted and numbed with hunger, Satan suggests, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus doesn't. At least, not then. Later in his ministry, though, when he stood before the 4,000 who'd been with him but three days, Jesus was moved with compassion, and from just seven loaves, he fed them all. This was a man who had the power to make bread, and who there in the desert certainly had the desire for it. And yet he refused to exercise that power for himself. Again, Satan tests him, taking him to the pinnacle of the temple and taunting, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus refuses to put His Father to the test this way. And yet at his death, after he had been raised high on the tree and expired, when Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, went to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away and an angel there told them that astonishing, world-changing news that Jesus was not there. He was risen. Finally, Jesus, Satan takes Jesus to a mountaintop and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, offering to make them his, if only he would worship him. But Jesus declares, Be gone, Satan. Jesus refused those kingdoms. And yet today, our ascended Lord sits in glory, enthroned above, as king over all the earth. It is his by right, one not through worship of Satan, but through love of us. That is the remarkable fact. Each thing Satan tempted Jesus to do for himself, our Lord turned around and did for us. Leaving the desert, Jesus came into Galilee and proclaimed the gospel of God, declaring, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and leave the gospel. God's beloved Son was walking the earth. The Word of God 
made incarnate and near. God had ripped open the heavens, had covered all the distance between him and us. The time was at hand. God was not outside his creation, but in it, in it, as this man Jesus, in order to draw himself closer to us. But just because God had reached out didn't mean that we humans were ready to receive him. In our vanity, we still prefer a false piety that keeps God safely behind the curtains of our tabernacles. In our pride, we'd rather imagine our access to him as something we earn for ourselves. Time and again, though, in his ministry, Jesus forgave and healed. But it was as if each act of love further enraged obstinate humanity until the rage built up in us so completely that at our hands he was crucified. There, nailed to a tree upon Calvary's hill, Jesus' body once again dripped, not with the waters of the Jordan, but with his own sweat and blood. And there he paid the penalty we exacted from him from for coming so close. A penalty he willingly underwent and made the cost of our redemption. So suspended above on the cross, even our sin could not obscure who he was. And as he died, exhaling the spirit with his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, shredding with it all humanity's futile attempts to constrain God. There on the cross, Jesus' identity and his purpose are most unmistakable. And at that very hour, even the centurion supervising his execution looked up to the heavens and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. By his incarnation, God ripped open the heavens. He ripped open the heavens to walk beside us. And by his cross, he tore to shreds the barriers we put between ourselves and him. And so, as we begin this season of Lent, let us take a moment to consider his purpose in doing so. And perhaps we can behold that purpose most clearly in his wilderness experience, in the temptations Jesus faces, and in the way he refuses them. For there we see that Jesus' resistance to temptation was never about proving his power, 
His whole life was never about proving His power. In fact, out in the wilderness, that was precisely what Satan wanted to make it about, proving His power. But instead, Jesus' resolve discloses the strength and the object of his love. May you not regard this Lenten life of yours as a test of willpower, but may you regard it as an opportunity to disclose the true object of your love, your love of Jesus Christ, who from his baptism to his temptation to his preaching, and yes, right through his death, undertook it all for you, did it all for you, because your life is his purpose. Your life is his purpose because you are his beloved. <laughs>